Thank you for listening to this podcast that is part of a series dedicated to the Fonts News Outlook 2022 event. My name is Marije Groen. While fixed income investors search for basis points of yield in developed markets, Chinese policy and treasury bonds offer an average yield to maturity of 2.9%. That's an extreme premium compared to the Eurobonds aggregate index of 0.081% and even US bonds aggregate of 1.74%. And what seems too good to be true rarely is not. The trouble surrounding real estate agent Evergrande could take the economic stability and harm the reliability of the Chinese government. And while inflation is growing, supply chain problems continue to be present. Could the premium be justified given the higher risk? I'll talk about that and more with my guest of today, Jason Simpson, fixed income analyst at State Street SPDR ETFs. Welcome, Jason. It's wonderful to have you. Well, thank you very much. Yes, um, wonderful to be uh, on a podcast about such an interesting topic as China. Indeed. Uh, it's in the news quite regularly and it's, uh, you know, the world's second biggest economy. So it's certainly something that I think should interest interest a lot of people. Well, let's definitely get, get into everything in, in more detail. Let's start with this Evergrande situation. Do you think it could destabilize the Chinese economy? Yeah, always uh, always good to start with the the thorny issues first, um, right? Uh, in terms of, uh, I guess, uh, the risks. Uh, so, posit some of the risks up front. So, um, I think it's fair to say that it could well weigh on growth, um, but uh, I don't believe that the Chinese authorities will would let uh, Evergrande get to the, the point where it becomes a, a destabilizing factor. Um, I think what is happening in China at the moment is very much a situation where the government is trying to reclaim control over the, a lot of points of the economy, whether that's um, real estate or you know in the education sector. And I think they're pushing back. I think they're just saying, look, you've got a highly leveraged business. This is an issue for you that you have to sort out as a, a private business um, and uh, not rely on the state to, to come riding into uh, into rescue you. So, you know, it's a classic case of they don't want the gains to be privatised and the losses socialised has happened when we were in, you know, sort of that, uh, a company becomes too big to fail. So um, I think that's... The, the route they're taking and they're controlling that process. So, um, you know, if if it was to go wrong, I do think, though, that the Chinese authorities have the resources to, you know, to, to, to sort out the problems as, as they occur. Right, right. Now, recent economic numbers from uh, the World Bank, IMF, indicate that China's economic growth is slowing uh, in pace. What is your outlook, Jason, for the Chinese economy? Yeah, I mean, obviously... China's been one of the major growth stories of this century. Um, it's sort of almost uh, gone up by, well, pretty much gone up by a factor of five since the turn of the century. So it's amazing growth. Um, but obviously sustaining that growth, it, it becomes more and more difficult as the economy gets larger and larger. Um, you know, in particular, obviously, you know, the early 2000s, it was sustained by by exports. So that was the big the model then. Um, as that has become more tricky to continue to 
you know, grow the export sector. They've moved away from that, um, from manufacturing into more into the services uh, economy. The problem there, obviously, is is the aging population. That means um, that uh, you know consumption isn't going to continue to rise uh, in in China per, on a per head basis, um, uh, maybe as quickly as they'd like. So um, overall, the growth trend is going to moderate. Um, I think near term, they've also got some some tricky issues, as we've already discussed in the real estate sector. But they've been hit by a lot of the same uh, problems we have with um, higher prices. They've had energy shortages. Uh, supply chain problems, um, and that's you know resulted in the manufacturing PMI being below fifty. Uh, they've obviously you know COVID is a constant um, issue out there where they have a habit of locking down the economy when there's an outbreak. So, you know, our, our official forecast for growth is around about five percent this year. It's down from you know probably around eight percent this year, um, but I suspect uh, it could be uh, the risk there is is maybe a little bit on the downside to to that five percent. Right. Now, now, in the Eurozone and the United States, uh, inflation is growing above expectations. How does that affect the Chinese economy? Um, yeah, I mean, they're the subject uh, to the same sorts of uh, issues or rises in price as, as um, the Western economies. So in particular, things like energy and commodities um, yeah, and supply chain disruptions have uh, have hit hit them just as they've hit most of uh, most of Europe and the US. So PPI there rose to 13.5% recently. So, you know, costs, input costs for the firms are rising. I think what might make things a little bit easier, though, is the fact that, you know, European and US uh, demand has held up pretty well. Um, you know, there's still this sort of reopening of the economies here, which which really has allowed producers to pass on a lot of these costs. And that's why we're getting a lot of inflation here. Mm-hmm. Um, but the inflation doesn't seem to have been of the sort that's really pushed down on consumption just yet. Uh, so that, that's actually probably facilitated the Chinese manufacturers pushing uh, price rises on to, you know, to us. So it's not maybe it's been quite quite such a, a bad impact there as um, as we're feeling it over here. Right. So so the inflation in China has been rising since 2019. How does that affect uh, fixed income investors, Jason? Yeah, um, I mean, CPI surged uh, into early 2020, um, but then you know, fell quite dramatically, actually, around the, the COVID outbreak. It's been slightly slower to pick up uh, than in most Western countries, and, and it's only reached one and a half percent. So, What's interesting is, well, I say producers can push on those price rises. They're struggling to do that in China domestically, but they have done that sort of externally in terms of their exports. But from a perspective that inflation has remained uh, a little bit more contained there than, say, Europe or or the US, where it really has surged, um, I think that's great news for for bond investors um, because real returns are much higher. Um, So... For instance, uh, you know, Chinese ten-year uh, yields uh, sort of two ninety, as you you mentioned at the beginning uh, of, of of the session, um, and that's a hundred and sort of forty basis points over their inflation rate. Conversely, if you're looking in in the, at the US, you get a yield of sort of one fifty five against CPI of of six point two percent. So that's a negative real yield. Uh, of, of 465 basis points. So, you know, that positive real yield, that that extra 
yield you're getting on top of inflation there is 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 really or should be viewed can, uh, as appealing uh, from an investment perspective. Let's dive maybe a bit deeper into that uh, bond market. Um, on your website, you say that Chinese bond market were not very accessible uh, until 2019. What has changed there exactly? Yeah, I think the story maybe starts a little bit before that. Um, so 2016, uh, I guess, is uh, where the international access to the onshore Chinese bond market really started to open up. So prior to that, you could be involved. State Street was involved prior to that 2016 point. But, you know, there was a quota system uh, that required regulatory approval for, for investors and there were limits on investment and holding periods and et cetera, et cetera. So it was quite a restricted market. Um, in 2016, the, the government opened up that market for direct access. Uh, so that was, uh, that was just the first step. Uh, 2017, China introduced the Bond uh, Connect system, which sort of made it easier for financial firms uh, to buy bonds uh, through Hong Kong. So, you know, these were big steps in terms of opening up the Chinese, opening up their market externally. But I think the big development since 2019 has really been on our side uh, in, in that indexes have started to include Chinese government bonds in them. So in April 2019, uh, Chinese exposure was included in the, the Bloomberg Barclays series uh, of, uh, of indices. Um, from early 2020, they were included in JP Morgan in those the EM debt indices there. And then from October this year, they're being included in the, in the FTSE uh, Russell, the World Government Bond Index. So, it, 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 you know, the opening from their side had occurred, but I think the difference now is that we are we are looking at integrating Chinese bonds into you know all these global portfolios and that makes a big difference. Mm. And when we look a bit more at the specifics of, of the Chinese bond market, what, what would you say is the relative size currently? Yeah, well, big. Big. <laughs> like <laughs> like big. everything in China. Um, you know, onshore bonds, uh, there's over 125 trillion renminbi uh, that, that in in you know in dollar terms that's around about twenty trillion. So uh, that makes it um, the second largest market after the US. It makes up around about seven percent of the Bloomberg Global Aggregate Index, uh, and is going to make up five point six percent of the World Government Bond Index, that FTSE index I was talking to you uh, about. So you know really is uh, too big uh, for investors to ignore. Yeah, indeed. And, and what is the share of, of foreign investors in the, in this bond market? Yeah, I mean, it's at the moment quite restricted. So if you took look at the entire market, um, uh, then it's quite small, 3 to 4%. Mm -hmm. um, but for straight government bond exposure, so just the, the, the Chinese treasury market is closer to 10%. But that's still fairly low uh, relative to most developed markets. Uh, so, you know, our view is firmly that developed market investors are underweight Chinese exposure. And, and I thought very interesting on this point. I was in a wonderful conference in Amsterdam last week, run by yourselves. <laughs> and um, in one session, we asked um, the attendees um, who, who in, in the room, who had exposure mm -hmm. to Chinese government bonds uh, in their portfolio. And, and none of them had, not not as a direct exposure, maybe as part of sort of an EM debt portfolio, but nobody, nobody admitted to having 
Chinese bonds as a, as a sort of standalone or an addition to their own portfolios. Wow, right. And that's something you you will hopefully change. Yeah, well, that's, what, that's what we aim for. <laughs> exactly. Um, which uh, segments can, can you differentiate? Yeah, I, I suppose it can be split down and we, we split it down into three different parts. Um, so government bonds, uh, which is principally just the treasury, although there are a little bit uh, local government bonds, but the main part is treasuries. Uh, that makes up just under 40% of the amount outstanding. And then there's something called policy bank bonds, which are around about 35%. Those are, you know, like development banks that are state-sponsored, so they've got a state backing. And, and a quite, you know, it is quite a deep and liquid market there as well. But there's a little bit smaller than just the straight treasuries. And then there's corporate bonds, i.e. issued by Chinese corporates that that make up around a quarter or sort of 25% of, of, of the market there. Right. So when we look a bit more at, at the investment side and, and at your strategy, um, what's the role of Chinese bonds in an investment portfolio? Yeah, we've touched on it already, but I think the most obvious is is a yield enhancer. The yield on the 10-year is sort of 290. So uh, that's well above 1.5% you're getting on US 10-year. So, you know, for euro investors in particular, that's an in, even greater improvement in yield. Um, you know, to get something similar, I guess you'd have to invest in euro high yield. Uh, obviously, there's no currency risk with that, but it does, of course, mean a big drop in credit quality. So Chinese uh, governments are, are rated as sort of an A1 or A+, plus, uh, whereas, um, you know, if you're looking at euro high yield, it's, it's probably more like a sort of B1 or B+. Plus. So, um, so, you know, there is more of a, a liquidity and a ratings boost from from looking at, at uh, or investing in China, Chinese treasury. Um, second point, I think, which maybe not quite as uh, so well covered is, is, is a, as a diversifier. So, you know, intuitively, if you include different moving parts in your portfolio, that sort of dampens down volatility. Um, and, you know, if you look at China, it's got a very different policy cycle so, you know, the central bank there moves in different ways uh, and therefore their bond market moves in a different way to European bond markets, for instance. So at the moment, you know, the, the PBOC has um, been easing liquidity measures uh, to support the real economy and, and could well cut rates uh, in 2022. You know, while we're all sat here saying, you know, well, hold on, the Fed and the, you know, is going to potentially raise rates, Bank of England potentially raise rates, uh, as their next move in China, it's the opposite. So adding in some exposure to China in your fixed income portfolio can um, both boost returns and reduce volatility. Right. And what would you say, Jason, is the correlation between China government bonds and, and other important bond markets? Yeah. So, I mean, if you look at on a, on a sort of dollar unhedged basis, so, um, you know, it, it would be very low, around about 14% taking sort of around about 15 years of data. So 14% against um, dollar bonds and around about 17% against euro. But, you know, I think perhaps what's more remarkable to me, so that makes sense, but I think more, more interesting is is the low correlations that it has to, to other EM uh, local currency debt. So that's only 17% correlation. So, you know, people think of China as this sort of EM nation, uh, and it is in obviously in a lot of respects, but the bond market does not behave like it. 
Um, and a key reason there is because the, the renminbi, the currency, is managed against the dollar. So while from a lot of emerging market nations, uh, the currency becomes a sort of key pressure valve where uh, when you get sort of times of stress, you get risk off, then that currency falls a lot and, and can be quite detrimental to your performance or your returns for your portfolio. The, the Chinese currency is managed within a 2% band each day. So it can move, absolutely. Um, but it's not got that volatility that you'd see in another EM bond market. So uh, from that perspective, I think it, it does, uh, you know, add in that stability. Right. You, you mentioned volatility and, and maybe you can tell us a bit more because uh, indeed one would expect more volatility uh, given the yields that Chinese bond offer. Is that true? Um, well, no, not really. Partly because of what I've explained before about the, the currency, but also the size of the market is a very liquid, deep market. Um, you know, but I think what strikes me as being The most interesting observation here was if you looked at Chinese bonds in in that during that COVID uh, crisis, they were behaving far more like U.S. Treasuries than any EM bonds. So EM bonds sold off because it was a big, big pairing back by investors of risk, whereas you know Treasuries rallied because that was the safe haven, but Chinese Treasuries also rallied. Um, you know, there is evidence there that they are treated as a sort of safe haven asset. And I think, you know, if you look at it on an unhedged basis, over again, over the last 15 years, volatility has only been marginally higher than US treasuries, uh, but actually lower than euro govies or UK govies, Australian debt. Uh, so, but then you're getting these extra returns on, on, on top of even treasuries. So uh, that's one, you know, principally why we're We're very keen on this exposure. Right. And and why did you choose to only include government bonds in, in your China bond ETF? It's a good question. Um, for their liquidity uh, mm -hmm. uh, and also, as I've mentioned, for the safe haven status. To enhance liquidity, we've also got in the index, we follow a minimum amount outstanding of 100 billion renminbi. Sounds like an awful lot, but that's around about 15 and a half billion dollars. Uh, so this really focuses the index on on sort of 50 or so of the most liquid Chinese bonds. Um, and, you know, I think liquidity in an environment where investors aren't necessarily sure or that confident that that uh, what they're what they're getting in terms of a lot, as we said, a lot of people aren't familiar with Chinese bonds. We wanted to focus on that sort of really liquid exposure You know, and I think a few years ago there was a case for maybe looking at that policy, those policy bank bonds, because they provided a meaningful uplift in yields. Um, however, there has been a big convergence there, and the you know the additional yield that you get by the inclusion of those policy bank bonds is sort of only sort of five to ten basis points now. So you know, you then take on obviously the risk that those spreads might move back out. So we've decided to focus just at pure. Treasury. Um, we're, we're reaching the end of this interview, um, but maybe as a final question, why should investors use passive instruments to, to access that Chinese bond market, Jason? Okay, yeah, that's, um, that's another good question. I mean, from, you know, as I said, for those who are not that familiar with Chinese debt or not that comfortable uh, with uh, trying to build a portfolio, you know, obviously building that portfolio can be expensive and time consuming. 
So, you know, building that up from scratch if you don't have a prior exposure. So I think, you know, ETFs, as with a lot of exposures, are a relatively cheap way uh, to gain exposure uh, to a portfolio of Chinese bonds. So um, I think that's a, you know, that that's a, a major draw. But um, you could also obviously go into an active fund. But from my perspective, you know, given this is a government exposure, it's unclear how much value you can really add through active management. I mean, it's not a surprise that we've seen a lot of government exposure shifting to the passive side uh, over the last sort of five years. And, and that is because it with spreads very tight with, um, you know, uh, liquidity uh, very high in a lot of these markets. It's become a lot more difficult for, for act. You've got to take quite a lot more risk to get that uh, additional uh, return from an active portfolio. So, you know, so we think that uh, passive is, is certainly the way to go for government bond exposures and, and a few other things. Um, but that's why, you know, we've launched this exposure and um, hoping uh, that people see the value in it. Thank you so much, Jason, for being here with me and for telling us more about Chinese bonds. Thank you very much. I would like to thank my guest, Jason Simpson, for his time and his insights. This podcast is offered to you by State Street SPDR ETFs. It was recorded as part of a series dedicated to Outlook Event 2022. For more podcasts, please visit fontsnews.nl forward slash podcasts. And if you'd like to know more about State Street's outlook for 2022 and beyond, please visit statestreet.com. Disclaimer. The views expressed in this material are the views of Jason Simpson of SPDR ETF Strategy, through the period ended December 31st and are subject to change based on market and other conditions. This podcast contains certain statements that may be deemed forward-looking statements. Please note that any such statements are not guarantees of any future performance and actual results or developments may differ materially from those projected. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice or an offer for a particular security or securities. The views and opinions expressed by the speaker are those of his or her own as of the date of the recording, and do not necessarily represent the views of State Street or its affiliates. Any such views are subject to change at any time based upon market or other conditions and State Street disclaims any responsibility to update such views. These views should not be relied on as investment advice, and because investment decisions are based on numerous factors, may not be relied on as an indication of trading intent on behalf of State Street. Neither State Street nor the speaker can be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered. Please consult your tax or financial advisor for additional information concerning your specific situation. This podcast cannot be used for commercial purposes and should only be used in the specific countries as restrictions exist with some products and services marketed globally. Marketing communication, professional clients only, the whole or any part of this work may not be reproduced, copied or transmitted or any of its contents disclosed to third parties without SSGA's express written consent. All information is from SSGA unless otherwise noted and has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy is not guaranteed. There is no representation or warranty as to the current accuracy, reliability or completeness of, nor liability for, 
decisions based on such information and it should not be relied on as such. The information provided does not constitute investment advice as such term is defined under the Markets in Financial Instruments Directive, 2014-65-EU, or applicable Swiss regulation and it should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell any investment. It does not take into account any investors or potential investors' particular investment objectives, strategies, tax status, risk appetite or investment horizon. If you require investment advice you should consult your tax and financial or other professional advisor. The information contained in this communication is not a research recommendation or investment research, and is classified as a marketing communication, in accordance with the Markets in Financial Instruments Directive, 2014-65-EU, or applicable Swiss regulation. This means that this marketing communication has not been prepared in accordance with legal requirements designed to promote the independence of investment research and is not subject to any prohibition on dealing ahead of the dissemination of investment research. This communication is directed at professional clients. This includes eligible counterparties as defined by the Netherlands Authority for the Financial Markets, who are deemed both knowledgeable and experienced in matters relating to investments. The products and services to which this communication relates are only available to such persons and persons of any other description, including retail clients, should not rely on this communication. Equity securities may fluctuate in value and can decline significantly in response to the activities of individual companies in general market and economic conditions. Bonds generally present less short-term risk and volatility than stocks, but contain interest rate risk. As interest rates raise, bond prices usually fall, issuer default risk, issuer credit risk, liquidity risk, and inflation risk. These effects are usually pronounced for longer-term securities. Any fixed income security sold or redeemed prior to maturity may be subject to a substantial gain or loss. Investing in foreign domiciled securities may involve risk of capital loss from unfavorable fluctuation in currency values, withholding taxes, from differences in generally accepted accounting principles or from economic or political instability in other nations. Investments in emerging or developing markets may be more volatile and less liquid than investing in developed markets and may involve exposure to economic structures that are generally less diverse and mature and to political systems which have less stability than those of more developed countries. Netherlands. State Street Global Advisors Netherlands, Apollo Building 7th Floor, Herikerberg Weg 29, 1101CN Amsterdam, Netherlands. Phone. Plus 3120-7181-000. State Street Global Advisors Netherlands is a branch office of State Street Global Advisors Europe Limited, registered in Ireland with company number 49934. Authorized and regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland, and whose registered office is at 78 Sir John Rogerson's Quay, Dublin 2. Copyright 2021, State Street Corporation. All rights reserved. Tracking code, 3945565.1.1.emea.inst. Expiration date, 31st of December 2021.